Welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads for a refreshing pause and a bit of reflection. My name is Brandon, and I'm really glad you're here. I invite you to join me and my friends, Matt and Peter, for a friendly back porch conversation about prayer, Christian spirituality, faithful theology, and much more. So pull up a chair, grab a drink, and get comfortable as we start today's show. And when we're done, don't forget to visit us at signpostend.org to find out more about all that our ministry offers. Hey friends, we have some great events coming up this fall, and I really hope you can join us. First, our final prayer retreat of the year is happening September 14th through 17th. Come away with us and fill your soul with God's love. We offer community, support, and encouragement as you take quality time to talk to God and let Him talk to you. Second, our free virtual book club is starting up again this September 12th. Over the course of four sessions, you'll read and discuss Low Anthropology, the unlikely key to a gracious view of others and yourself. This book is by David Zoll, and I promise you this book will change you, and you'll gain some awesome friends too. If you're interested in it at all, check out our previous episode where we interviewed David Zoll on this book. Third, if you're a spiritual director and you're interested in liturgical and sacramental spirituality, well, you're not alone, and we're hosting two free Zoom meetups for you one on August 17th, and another on September 12th. We'd love to have you come, share your wisdom and experience, and meet other like-minded spiritual directors. And finally, for now, this one's for our local Canyon City listeners, we are hosting an in-person conference at the Free Church on October 7th called Hearing Jesus. It's crucial to the way we understand Scripture that we can hear Jesus' true and compassionate tone of voice when we read His words. In this conference, we're going to tackle some of the tougher passages of Scripture, like when Jesus called a Canaanite woman a dog, and we're going to learn to hear God's love behind them. You can register to join any of these awesome events at signpostn.org events. Again, that's signpostn.org events. But hurry, most of these events have pretty limited space. So again, that's signpostn.org events. And now, enjoy the show. Many of us long for a slower pace of life, uh, a life where we can withdraw from all the busy requirements of the crazy world and connect with God, a life with more space for reflection and stillness and rest. But short of joining a monastery, that seems impossible. How am I, with all my duties and responsibilities, supposed to find time in life for hours of prayer and reflection? Well, my guest today, Father Ronald Rollheiser, has written a wonderful little book titled Domestic Monastery, which gently addresses this very question, and I'm delighted to have him on the back porch with us. Uh, Father Rollheiser, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And first of all, let me make sure I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Yes. Pronounce it like the beer. It's like Budweiser. Okay. okay. Wonderful. Okay. Good. I I just have to tell you, I really loved this book. One of my coworkers brought it to my attention and it's just, it's so refreshing to be honest. But before we jump into it, I'd love to hear a little bit about who you are, where you come from, and then what, why this book? What, what got you to this book? Okay. Okay, Well, I'll give you my life story in, in, in the half minute thing. No, I'm a Canadian. I was born in the Canadian prairies. And joined the missionary order when I was young. I'm a missionary of Mary Immaculate. It's a missionary order around the world. And but actually spent most of my priesthood teaching theology, first in Edmonton, and then now here in San Antonio, Texas, one of our schools. Okay. I've taught, I think, 25 summers, Seattle University, been around. So, but I teach spirituality. And 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 my life work is kind of to to let me use a word, I call it retrieval. You know, there's so many profound, deep books in Christian tradition. Say, like, for instance, next to the Bible, the most sole Christian book ever is called The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Kempfus. Mm-hmm. But, you know, most people can't read that book. 
that you'll get put off by the first three sentences, you know, because yeah. this is written in a different time with a different language, with a, you know, and so we call that retrieval to go into these, the depths of, you know, desert monasticism, even scripture, you know, which isn't, you don't understand perfectly if it's 2000 years old and so on. And, and, and retrieves it. What does that mean for today? Mm. See, so this, this is this particular book, I thought, you know, monks, you know, James Hillman, who was an atheist, but James Hillman said, monks have some secrets worth knowing, you know, so yeah, but but see, these books that they write, they were written by monks for monks. But you know, like, but what are the principles that we can pull out of there? For everybody, you know, what's what's mm. the depth? Because the ordinary person reading, for instance, you try to read The Imitation of Christ, which is a spiritual classic, and you'll run into a sentence like, every time you leave your room, you come back less a man. Hello? <laughs> like, <laughs> how do you live that? Or stay in your cell, it'll teach you everything you need to know. Like, what those yeah. things, what can they mean, you know? Yeah. Or John of the Cross, the famous mystic, said, he said, when you get to a mature place in the spiritual life, said, all the deep things happen under the surface. What does that mm. mean? You know, so I've done a lot of work, you know, to, to, to work with them for, I've been teaching for 40 years. And part of my work is to try to retrieve that. And the domestic monastery and deliberately wanted a small readable book that, you know, that, that, that's yeah. cross denominational lines. It's not a Catholic book. It's not a Protestant book, not an evangelical yeah. book. It's a Christian book. Yeah. Well, it, it certainly accomplished both of those, in my opinion. I mean, one, it's definitely small. Listeners, you can read this in one setting very easily, but it's but it's also, I think, packed with some pretty good lines and ideas that, that honestly, I, I actually had to, I couldn't read it in one setting. I had to sit with it. I was like, oh, this is different. Can I ask you a brief question just about retrieval? Because that's something that's really near and dear to my heart as well. Like my entry into the ministry that I do now, my training is in philosophy and theology and introduced to some of the kind of contemplative stuff long ago, but then picking it back up. It's like, I went back to older books, right? Just like you're talking about. And I feel like so much of what goes for spirituality or contemplative stuff these days is just not connected to those sources. There's there's the veneer of it, but we yeah. don't we don't really have the sense of what those things actually were, what those great minds were actually saying. Yes, very much. And I I'm in deep sympathy. You know, the word spirituality has been secularized. You know, it's it's become, you know, as opposed to the depths of say the desert tradition or scripture, or whatever you have, you know, the the 12 habits of of successful people, you know, yeah. Microsoft cultivating a, a climate of spirituality or something. See, it's it's just it's it's that spirituality light, light, not just spirituality light. So basically, yeah. it's a secularized, you know, think optimistic and work hard and all things are possible for you. So that's not what this is about. You know, like you know, the, in the scriptures, starting with scripture, but you know, with the the great minds and thinkers in the history of Christianity, there's a lot of depth. But it's old and in a different language, you know. Like, you yeah. know, how how do you how do you mine that literally to retrieve? Yeah. That? But I sympathize with you. So much of what's called spirituality today is simply, you know, the power of positive thinking. Right. Well, and it seems to me that when we do read these older things, frankly, when we read anything, <laughs> but there seems to be a a tendency to be reading for information that I already want that basically I'm looking for stuff that already backs up what I already think yeah. rather than to read, to be transformed by it or to be yeah. challenged by it. And like, that's just such a fundamental difference. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the books that that really struck me was there's, I can't remember, I can never remember who wrote it, but it's abandonment to divine providence. Yeah. And Pierre de Cassad. there it is. Yeah. And it's like, to me, every chapter in that book is, a repeat. It's like the same thing over and over and over again, which sounds like a bad thing sometimes, but it's not. It's like, because every time you read it, the, the next chapter, it's saying exactly what he said the last chapter, but it, it, it in a new way that makes you pause, if you're willing to pause with it, if you're willing to listen. Brendan, it's hitting a different part of your soul. It's the same thing, but your soul is a cop. It's it's speaking to a little different part of your soul each time, you know? Yeah. That's a classic book. That's another classic, you know, that's helped a lot of people. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you for that. That was captured my attention right off the bat there. Your book, The Domestic Monastery, first of all, 
I guess we'll start it this way. Right at the very beginning, you you have this fantastic little quote. It says, certain vocations, for example, raising children, offer a perfect setting for living a contemplative life. What do you mean by that? And maybe you should start by defining contemplative life. Okay, well, I want to start with two stories. You know, today you precisely talked about spirituality. And so you have a lot of groups where they meet and and what's your practice? Well, my practice is mindfulness and I do Zen meditation. I do this and I do that and so on. So I did a group once and somebody asked this woman, what's your practices? My spiritual practice is raising my kids. It's a good line. It's a good line. Um, Tied it to another story. You know, one of the great spiritual writers the end of, you know, in, in the 90s, 80s and 90s, was, he was a desert monk called Carlo Corretto. And he lived in the Sahara Desert for about 24 years and translated the scriptures into the Bedouin language. And he wrote these marvelous books. Mm. And But he said, you know, he said uh, he was an Italian. He said, I spent 24 years living in a hut as a monk in the Sahara Desert. He said, I went home to visit my mother. He said, my mother raised 11 kids and sometimes had days where she didn't have time to go to the bathroom, not alone to have a structured prayer life, said, and I found that my mother was more contemplative than I was. He said, not that there's something wrong with being a monk, but there's something to be very right in daily life. Mm. See, a contemplative life. So I'll answer your first question last. What is contemplation? Contemplation isn't some, as Merton said, some artificial high in a chapel, but said, contemplation is, 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 being just true to who you are inside of your life, mm. you know, and 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 see the, the the monks have a language for that 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 needs to be retrieved. It, it makes sense inside of a monastery. It doesn't make sense outside of a monastery. Mm. So you know, but I love what this woman said. My contemplative practice is raising my kids. You know, quite simply put, if you're a mother or a father and you have young kids, well, for the next twenty years. You may not think about yourself like everything. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're taking your time, your energy, and everything else. Well, after the 25 years, you you you've been conscriptively brought to unselfishness in your life. Like, no, it's it's hard to be an honest parent and be selfish. You know, you, you mm. simply have to live for others. Well, mm-hmm. well, isn't that a contemplative practice? You know, mm. for instance, I'm a celibate, a priest. You know what the greatest danger in celibacy is? Is not having kids. If you're not careful, you can become really selfish, live for yourself. Nobody, no, you know, whereas if you're a, you're a father of a family, you know. Yeah, I have five kids. <laughs> well, well, then you don't have any luxury. You, you don't have the luxury of ever being selfish for the next 20 years, you know, yeah, because yeah. see, the, the kids, they, they call you, they take you, they take your time. See, so for instance, I'm a celibate, so I better have a prayer practice that does that to me you're a father of a family those kids they are your practice i mean you still have to pray and go to church and so on but you know they're calling you out of selfishness you know there's a great scripture text brendan that you know in in john chapter 21 when jesus calls peter said do you love me said feed my lambs feed my sheep then the last time he said because he said this he said now he said up to now he said you've gird your belt and you walk where you wanted to walk, but now others will put a belt around you, take you where you'd rather not go. You know, that's what your kids yeah. are doing to you. <laughs> they put a belt on you, and for the next 25 years, whether you want to or not, you have to live for others. You know, huh. that's that's yeah. a, the practice. You know, I, the, the danger in a celibate or single life is precisely if you're not careful, you can get really selfish. Mm-hmm. You don't have that luxury now. You don't have the luxury of getting selfish. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I I never have connected that that passage, the belt around you, and you'll lead you where you don't want to go with being in a real sense a blessing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. doesn't feel be, like a blessing all the time, of course, but well, you know, it, for Peter, it meant to martyrdom, but for you, it's a it's yeah. a it's a mini martyrdom every day, you know. Yeah, but I, I love that text. They put it. Belter, and that's what a true commitment will do. It'll put a belt on you and mm. take you away to rather not go and see so that, for instance, raising kids, that, that's that's the image of the domestic monastery. You know, mm-hmm. I know some some Christian mothers, they talk about their monastery and the little monks. <laughs> so, yeah. And yeah. the monastery again. Yeah. Can you say more about the word commitment that you just used that 
that's what making a commitment will do. I, and a thought is forming in my mind that I can't quite capture right now, but there's something, I don't know, there's something countercultural to me about that idea. And it's kind of throughout your book, right? That, yeah. that there's this the vow even, right? It, like you're, there's so many parallels between the vow of marriage and the vow of going into a monastery, the commitment to a life, the commitment yeah. to a certain thing. I don't know. I'm not, that's not really a question, but can you say more about that? Let, let, let me give you a, okay. You said you studied philosophy. This is the line in philosophy and I'm not sure it came from Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas or whoever, but I, I, I in fact, I used it preaching the church yesterday, you know, where they said, every choice is a renunciation mm. you know and see and that's why mm -hmm. our culture finds it so difficult to commit it's not that we don't want something we want everything else too you know you know henry now on the great spiritual writer was so honest and henry said you know he says i want to be a great saint but i don't want to miss out on any sensations that sinners experience you know he said yeah i don't want to have a deep prayer life he said but i don't want to miss anything on television or anything you know see yeah, see, yeah. Uh, Kierkegaard, the great Lutheran theologian, said, I'd like his definition of being a saint. He said, to be a saint is to be able to will the one thing, you mm. know, which sounds simple. You know, it's not that we don't will. We will everything else, too. See, so our culture struggles with commitment. You know, young people, they struggle with marriage. They struggle with it. Not because they don't want it. Keep your options open. Keep your options mm -hmm. open. See, as soon as, as soon as you marry one person, you can't marry somebody else. As soon as you have kids, you can't do these other things and so on. And uh, see, so commitment puts that rope on you. And unconsciously, people know that. But basically, I, I love that line. Every choice is a renunciation, except I'll say mm -hmm. every choice is a hundred renunciations. See, mm -hmm. so commitment mm -hmm. is to choose, you know, you know, and that's what mm -hmm. Jesus meant when he said, you know, you know, you, you can't love mother, father, brother, sister more than me. And so on. he's not saying it. He's in competition with it, loves it. You got to be able to choose. You, you know, you, you you can't have it all, <laughs> which we all want. Uh, right. That's. But notice, Brendan, in our culture, how difficult commitment is for people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, you're speaking my language when you talk Soren Kierkegaard. But, I mean, it strikes me too that like how backwards we are in our brokenness and our sinfulness that it's to want it all is is actually so parallel it would be to get nothing if i were to try to get it all i would never get anything because i would always be saying no to anything <laughs> i mean i don't know if that logic makes sense but it that's really what happens if i want everything i get nothing yeah that's the paradox but yeah. by trying to you know i've written on that you know if you take and, and they're good people but take some of but who've destroyed themselves say some of our are rock stars. So back to Janis Joplin, Michael Jackson, Amy Winehouse, these were good people who all died in their 20s. But basically, they tried to drink it all of life. It's just, I'm going to have it all and eventually kill them, literally, mm -hmm. you know, so that that's what Kierkegaard meant. You to be is to will the one thing. The one thing. Yep. And we all want to will it, but the trouble is we don't want to make, <laughs> we don't want to, we want to will everything else as well. And to, right. And, and and that's destructive, you know, you know, it's like, like a kid who can't decide which toy to play with. So he doesn't play with any. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose that brings up the question. Here's a person out there hearing this and saying, well, shoot, that's me. I'm terrified of making a commitment. What's your advice? How do you move from that paralysis to commitment? Well, that that's... <laughs> I know that's a huge question. No, no, no. It actually, it's more, more complex because, you know, remember the, just the interplay between willpower and grace, you know? Yeah. First of all, I think there's a realization that maturity is going to happen when we make choices. You know, I'm going to stay immature forever. And I know 30 and 40 and 50 year olds who are still trying to make up their mind what they want to do in life. Yeah. Because there's so many options, you know, and I'm 40 years old. I'm not sure where I want to go and so on good person, but their, their life is paralyzed. But I think to realize that maturity comes and say, I have to choose, you know, mm. I can't marry everybody in the whole world. I'm going to marry this person. You know, I can't do everything else. I'm going to have this job and so on. And then you still need the willpower. I mean, willpower and grace, you know, mm. in fact, it's one of the tensions between Catholics and Protestant evangelicals. Right. Catholics emphasize more willpower, but it's both, you know, yeah. um, we have to do our part and if we do our part, God will do his part, you know, 
And it's interesting, there's so many happy stories of people who dallied for years. And then when they made a commitment, they say, wow, should have done that 20 years ago. You know, that's right. life finally has some structure, some meaning, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, I find this true with, you know, I we're coming up on my wife, leave, forgive me if I got this wrong. We're coming up on 21 years of yeah, marriage yeah. and it's, it, we have commented recently on just how young and dumb we were when we got married, but how incredibly, I don't know, like I would never make a different choice at this point. Like the years of commitment are worth it. Like this I am who I am because of that relationship and I'm better for it. And had I tried not to do that, I would have been a much worse person, <laughs> but I guess that's the, uh, the boy, there's a lot of connection here, even kind of jumping into the next thing I want to ask you about your book, because it's, I think from the way I experienced that was like on this side of the, of the decision on the, before I made the commitment side of the decision. It was terrifying. I was going to kill my options. I was going to limit myself to one thing. On the other side of the commitment decision, it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like that's what opened up so many things for growth for me. Like, had I not done that, I would have never moved. And I, so it just feels so different on the other side of it, which really takes an act of faith. I think that's where the Kierkegaard thing connects for me so strongly. You know, Brandon, I say the same thing, you know, like when, when, like I'm a religious and we have about seven or eight years to make up our mind, whether we want to do this permanently. And there's mm-hmm. seven or eight years, you know, you're in your early twenties and should I do this, not do it, you know, and, and, and a lot of people leave. And then finally for myself, once I made the jump, there was just this, wow, you know, then it opens up, you know, you're no longer sitting on any fences. You put yourself into it and then you just mm-hmm. learn so much. And there's so much richness on the other side of commitment. Mm-hmm. So I think that connects to the quote you brought up kind of at the very beginning, the difficult quote, which you use in the book, which is that we should stay inside our cell because that cell will teach us everything we need to know. Um, Have we kind of already hit all what that means? No, no, no. We've hit it in a a roundabout way, but let me just, you know, pin it down. You know, that's in that famous book, you know, first of all, every time you leave your cell, you come back less a person. He said, so stay in your cell and it'll teach you everything you need to, to learn. Okay. Now, see a cell, that's code for your, your commitment. You know, say, for instance, Thomas Kempis would say to you, said, every time, for instance, you're a married man, if you leave your cell, suppose you have an affair or something, you'll come mm-hmm. back less a person. Mm-hmm. And if you stay in your marriage, stay with your kids, that's going to teach you everything you need to know that's going to teach you where god wants to take you and so on mm-hmm. see so the cell basically means your commitment it means your home your marriage mm-hmm. and and see when you when you tease that out that way it makes perfect sense say yeah if you leave your you know if you read it literally you leave your cell you come back less a person you no know? right but if you say if you're unfaithful in your marriage you're going to come back less a person you know stay inside there and that's going to teach you you know, my parents who were an older generation, and they had a, a spirituality of this with a different language, but they called it, you, you know, um, well, I forget what the word they had, but ba- basically called it duties of state. So that, for instance, mm-hmm. they're married with kids, and God gives you duties of state. And if you're faithful to those duties of state, yeah. you're going to be faithful to God, you know, seeing that's much the same thing. You know, so for instance, yep. you're married, you have kids, you have a job, and so on. Those are your duties of state. That's mm-hmm. where God wants you right now. And if you stay faithful inside of that, you're being faithful. Mm-hmm. You know, if you shirk those, then you're leaving yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is the part about this that really hit me. I just, when you're talking about this in the book, this is kind of like the ending of this section. You said, stay inside these, your commitments, don't betray them. Learn what they are teaching you without constantly looking for life elsewhere and without constantly believing that God is elsewhere. Yeah. And boy, that that just nails it for me. It's like, yeah, the temptation to leave my commitments, the temptation to look outside of my, you know, quote unquote, the metaphor of the cell. I'm looking for life outside of God. I'm looking for life anywhere but where he actually is. Right. And the learning to rest, which is hard, admittedly, but learning to rest in the 
God is for me, even when I have four teenagers at home who are causing difficulties. God is there. <laughs> That's where he is. I noticed, I noticed you're getting a few gray hair. <laughs> Let me tease out a part of that. I say, you know, and and don't looking for God elsewhere. So it's, as you said, like, like God is there. But also, see, for instance, okay, you're a father of a family, you're married and so on. You, when you, don't say, well, I'm going to have to try to be a monk part-time or you'd be a Buddhist on the side, you know, to find God because I, I can't find God inside my family, you know? See, mm. yeah, find God inside of your commitment and what you're doing or vice versa. If I'm a celibate and so on, I'm on to say, well, I, I, I need to somehow have a bunch of relationships outside or something to be able to find God out there and so on. You know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, being outside sometimes, for instance, for you to do a retreat and go to a monastery sure. for a week or something. But but that's an extra. That's not the meat and the bread and butter of where you're going to find God. You're going to find him right. dealing with those those teenagers. And that'll yeah. do it for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So speak to, maybe speak for a moment to the younger folks, maybe to my teenagers. I, you know, I have my oldest is 19. I know some others who are 20, 25-ish people who haven't gotten married yet, aren't sure what they're going to do in that time frame. What's the sell for them if they have one? Or is this, this just occurred to me. I don't know what to do with this right now in my own mind. Yeah, that that's a tough one. And, you know, I'm going to, you know, plead poverty here, you know, like I, you know, when I was a younger priest, I did a lot of work with youth and, you know, and that's what times effective. The, the older I get, the more... And the more generational stuff that, you know, today I, I'm I'm not sure I'm a much of a guru for youth, you know, wish I was and so on. But, you know, it, it's more advice to you as a parent to journey with them, you know, and, and know, knowing that God is more anxious about them than you are. <laughs> mm. And, and mm. also that 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 God has a way of bringing them home in a way that maybe you can't. You know, I, I once heard a fascinating homily in a church, and this young preacher was talking about, he says, uh, said, I think God is like a GPS. And I thought, where is he going with that? But he went to a good place. He said, you know, with a GPS, no matter how many times you disobey it, it never writes you off. It never says, well, for God's sakes, you're hopeless. You know, it's just recalculating. And no matter where you're at, it, it, it well, you know, yeah. teenagers and stuff today, and they're, they're on their own journey. And I always tell them, you know, our churches are the greatest GPS on the planet. But they don't want to, they don't want to follow a GPS. I said you can save yourself a lot of dead ends, a lot of recalculating. The good news is God is going to get them there, you know, so that no matter how many times they say turn right and they don't, it's going to say recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. Eventually God will get them there. But just in terms of advice to them, I want to follow, you know, a person who has an old man had a great success with young people was old John Paul II, you know. Mm. But you know what he called them to? To their idealism. He'd always mm. say, like, uh, like, reach for what's mm -hmm. higher. Don't settle for second best. Don't get, you know, like, so, and, and see, that appeals to them. You know, they're young, they're idealistic. Uh, appeal to their idealism. So, you know, like, you deserve better than this. You're a better person than this. Don't get sucked in by this, you know, like, and that was his great strength with youth. He, he appealed to their idealism. And they say like like, uh, don't don't go with second best. Like like don't sell yourself short. Mm -hmm. See now the question of of them making commitments. You know we have a sociologist in Canada, original Bibby Baptist guy. He's our best sociologist of religion. But he studied this is about twenty years ago. He studied the millennial millennial. Getting something. Right. Yeah, the millennials. Yeah, and he said this was one of the things that there was good news and bad news. He said the good news is that almost all of them wanted to end up in a monogamous marriage said so the bad news was most of them thought they could have some years of promiscuity first mm -hmm. and then pull that together you know well spiritual wisdom again from the monks and so on is that no the worst preparation for marriage is promiscuity before marriage you know mm -hmm. the best preparation for marriage is fidelity before marriage that's mm -hmm. why for instance in buddhist tradition a lot of young men become monks for a couple of years with no mm -hmm. intention of staying just kind of, you know, um, this is going to prepare me for marriage. Huh. You know, and and I, I had that firsthand experience when I was in the seminary. Most of the guys I studied with eventually left and married. 
but every one of them see those four or five years of the seminary were just the best preparation for marriage rather than yeah. being on a university campus with uh, free sex and all kinds of other stuff, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. That practice and commitment. Yeah. Makes sense. That's, that's very helpful. I, there's a lot of thoughts going through my head. I think, yeah, I think if, you know, I'm thinking of a few people that I know personally that I work with even that are youngish and it's I, I, the thing about appealing to ideals is very helpful. I think in a sense of, you yeah. know, and that I, I guess I just want to flag for those folks who are listening who are younger that's that's not a that's not a tactic that's actually a like opportunity <laughs> you know you, it, it's not just do this so that you will it's like actually appeal to your own ideals yeah yeah because if you settle for second best or if you settle for promiscuity before commitment it, you know there's there's a price to be paid there yeah. Um, I don't know if this segues into this or not, but I'm curious about the section on prayer. Um, you, you have a, a section about rituals and sustaining a prayer life, which I confess, <clears throat> this one both was incredibly encouraging and also kind of condemning for me in a sense, like probably for most of us, right? It's difficult to maintain that regular prayer life. It's difficult to keep that ritual but you say that love and prayer can only be be sustained through ritual, routine, and rhythm. Can I ask you to explain yes. that? Okay. First of all, that's monastic wisdom. Now, I want to begin again, and I'm going to give you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, mm. Luther, martyr. And, and I'm really struck with this. You know, when he, he was a priest, and when he married people, he'd often use this line. He'd tell the couple, he said, today, you're here, and you're very much in love. And you think that your love can sustain your marriage, but it can't. But your marriage can sustain your love. See, see, marriage is a ritual container, you know. You know, love, I mean, affect the feelings of love. They come, they go, they come, they go. The, the commitment, the container stays. So, for instance, like, let's use love and then I'll use prayer. You know, for instance, a couple might have a, a ritual where every morning before you go to work, yeah, hug each other, have a kiss and say, I love you. You know, some days you mean it more than others, <laughs> you know, no, but you don't just say it on those days when you mean it, you know, mm -hmm. you say it all the time and see your, your affections move in, your affections move out. That ritual holds you, it holds you, you know, so that, and so you have rituals and family life and love and so on, mm -hmm. so that you, you don't say, I'm only going to do it when I feel like it, you know, mm -hmm. or you, suppose you have a, your mother's in a senior's home and, you know, you have a time where you visit her twice a week and so on. Well, you don't just visit her when you feel like it because you won't feel like it very often. See, and, yeah. and you have this long relation with your mother, which is deep and meaningful because it's, it's a ritual practice, you know. Now, the same with prayer. If I only pray when I feel like it and I have time, I'm not going to pray very often. But if you set a ritual, say, every day I want to do these prayers or every day I'm going to, you know, read 20 minutes of scripture or whatever, and you do it whether you feel like it or don't feel like it, see, then you're, you're going to sustain it through the years. See, mm -hmm. there's a real danger in someone saying, I'm only going to pray when, when I'm up to it, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of times you're not up to it. I mean, emotionally, you know, see that you can't bring your emotion, but you can feel your, your body, you feel, feel your, your person into the prayer. Sometimes the only way you can pray is with your body, just by being there, you know, mm -hmm. go, 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 if Sunday services, well, you know, if you're only going to go on days when you feel I'm there, you're not going to go very often. You go all the time. You go every Sunday. Yeah. And some Sundays you're more in it. Sometimes you're out of it. And, and it's not that the other Sundays it's rote. Like sometimes some of my liberal friends will say, well, then I'm just going through the motions. No, you're not going through the motions. Okay. So I'll use that analogy again with your mother. If you have a mother in a senior's home and you visit her twice a week and you go someday when you're tired and say, are you just going through the motions? No. <laughs> yeah, right. I want, to give, I want to give you a great line. Uh, you know who Annie Lamott is? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I know she's Presbyterian or Episcopalian out of San Francisco. <clears throat> she's very colorful. But the odd time she really nails a line. <clears throat> And and you can bleep this word out afterwards, but but it's a good word. It makes. But she she tells it in one of her books. She said she has had a, at that time her son was thirteen years old. So she's have his thirteen year old son says, 
said, I've virtually raised this kid in church. And he loved it. You know, the people fussed over him. He said, then he gets to be 13, 14. He comes one day and he says, mom, I don't want to go to church anymore. So she says, why not? I said, doesn't mean anything to me. So now what do you think Annie Lamott's going to say to her son? I said, this is where the bad word comes in. She said, I told him, I couldn't give a whether it means anything to you. She said, that's the child's answer. She said, it doesn't have to mean anything to you. She said, it means something in itself. She said, first of all, it means something to me. I'm your mother. It means something to those people. They love you. She said, but it means something in itself. It's like visiting your grandmother. You visit your grandma not because it means something. She's your grandmother. She says, you grow up when you realize things mean something in themselves, independent mm. of your of your affectivity on, on a certain day, you know, mm-hmm. and see, that's what I mean by those lines. See, so in love, as a father, as a husband, in prayer, you know, <clears throat> you have to have, <clears throat> if you don't want to use the word, <clears throat> excuse me, rituals, if you can use the word habits or just mm-hmm. rhythms, you know, see, so that's monks. I'll give you a famous line from, from Benedict who wrote the early monastic rules. Benedict says, he said, a monk's life is ruled by the monastic bell. He said, when the bell rings, said, you drop what you're doing and go to the next exercise. Not because you want to, he said. And even at this famous line, he said, if you're writing a letter, you need to cross a T, don't you put your pen down. You go to the next exercise. Said, Not because you want to, because it's time. And time isn't your time, it's God's time. You know, mm. see, so monks, they go by rhythm. You know, it's a, they don't. Now, what I call the monastic bell in your home, you don't have a monastic bell, you have an alarm clock. When it goes up in the morning, you get up, not because you want to, it's time. You go to work, you do, you drive kids to, to lessons and so on, because that's what you're called to, you know, and mm. see, and it's not like you're going through the motions, mm-hmm. you know. Some, right. some some days you might feel, God, it's great to be a father. And some days you might say, how do I sell these to a circus <laughs> <laughs> and have some freedom and so on. Yeah. And, but, but see, but it's rhythm. And, and for instance, as a father and, 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 a, and, a, and a husband, you have inbuilt rhythms. You have inbuilt rituals. You know, you're going to pick mm-hmm. up the kids. You're going to do this and so on. That's a ritual. See, it's something you do every day and, and, and then it structures your life. And, and it keeps you inside your marriage, inside your fatherhood, inside your church. Yeah. And today, today that when, when people say it doesn't mean anything to me, they want to be there by feelings. You know, right. I'm going to go right. to church when I feel like it. Right. I'm going to stay with you in this marriage if I feel like it. It doesn't work. Right. Well, and it it strikes me as we're talking about this, like you can hear this one way. You can hear this like maybe this is just my background, but I can hear it almost like do more be you know work harder get up every morning do these rituals be it's almost like the problem i have with physical exercise right it's like i can do it for three days but boy i'm gonna really have to build it in somehow if i'm gonna actually sustain that habit and it feels just like it just like a drag just like a requirement but but i think you flip it around and you realize it from what you're what you're being invited into in this rituals, in this life, in the cell, in the prayer, yeah. whether I feel it or not is life. Yeah. Right. And what I hear you saying is my feelings about that come and go. I may feel like this is life for me. I may not feel like it's life for me, but it is. And there will be times when I do feel it like it really is, you know, from God's perspective, his, his emotions quote unquote are never not there. He's never sad yeah. to be there. He's not holding back gifts today because he's uh, he's God and you're not <laughs> right. I know, but I'm just saying that that's exactly the point. It's like, I come and my emotions, my enjoyment comes yeah, and yeah, goes. Yeah. But as you said, the thing itself yeah. remains good in life. Yeah. Can I give you another little, one of my pet things that, you know, like yeah. I, I think today too oftentimes we crucify ourselves and our society does with our notion of happiness you know, like, mm. so if somebody comes to you and say, Brendan, are you happy? Are you happy in your marriage? You're happy? Well, I always say, that's a question to torture yourself with. Some days you're happy, some days you're not happy and so on. But it's the wrong question. You know, mm. I always say, imagine when Jesus is dying on the cross, somebody come up and said, are you happy up there? He'd say today, <laughs> no, you know, but see if someone comes to you and said, Brendan, is there meaning in your life? Say, yeah. See, meaning is abiding and happiness as an emotion flows in and out. So, you mm-hmm. know, so you can say, 
there's meaning in my marriage. There's meaning in my fatherhood. There's meaning in my work, you know, and some days I feel a little happy. Other days I don't feel so happy, you know, I have bad hair day or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but, but see, so I think we, we torture ourselves in our society with, you got to be happy. Are you fulfilled? And so mm -hmm. on. It's the wrong question. See, see, then we're striving for something which is ephemeral. You can't, but meaning abides. You can see, yeah. Oh, My man. life is and meaningful, I, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and it answers, I think, the deepest, one of the deepest longings, the yeah. actual longing. Yeah. Uh, I, just because I want to make sure I, you know, I, your time, I want to respect your time. And I, I want to jump to this last question okay. that's kind of at the end of your book, which is life's key question. And it's about preparing for death. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I just personally, I don't think we talk about enough. <laughs> We're so afraid to talk about death. So let me just ask you the question as the prompt that you start the chapter with, which is, what should I do? to make myself ready for death. And well, you can go with that however you like. Okay. Well, I want to start with a quote from Henry Nouwen. You know, Henry Nouwen writes in one of his books, he says, there comes a time in your life when the important question is no longer, what can I still do to make a contribution to, you know, help others? The question becomes like, how can I live now? So when I die, my death will be my last greatest gift to society and so on. Uh, now, the thing is, you don't stop living, you don't stop doing what you're doing, and so on, but you do it in such a way, and now I'm going to get to Jesus. You know, in John's in John's gospel, you have that long, long farewell discourse. You know, in the other gospels, the Last Supper is just one paragraph. You know, mm. in John's gospel, it's about half the gospel. You know, Jesus is making mm. this long farewell discourse, but in there he keeps saying constantly, I'm going to leave you peace. When I go... I'm leaving my peace behind, you know? So, mm. so for instance, okay, you're, you're young enough. You don't have to think about when I'm going to die. And so on, you know, you, you're, you're still, I, you're still meant to give your life away and work every day for others and so on. But you have to say, I want to live in such a way that when I die, be it tomorrow or 50 years from now, what the legacy I leave behind is a legacy of peace. When your kids think of you, people think of you, they don't say, well, God, he was an awful man or whatever, you know, what he brought, you know, so th th there's a sense yeah. of peace, you know, mm -hmm. see, you know, and Luke's gospel is the clearest in Luke's gospel. By the time Jesus dies, everything is peaceful. Everything is fixed. It's all done, you know, see, so you, you, you need to, to live right now, relating to your wife, to your kids, to your work in such a way that, that you become an instrument of peace and not an instrument of chaos. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, let me give you something that's not abstract. And you, you'll know mm. that just you'll experience with other people. You know, there, there's, there's certain people you work with or live with, they bring peace into a room or stability. And other people bring chaos into a room. Or you, you, people are on edge or what's he going to do and so on. Because um, mm -hmm. it's not just when you die. Every time you leave a room, you're leaving behind peace or a little bit of chaos, <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. and see, so, so already right now with your wife, your kids, your work, your friends, see, I, I'm, I'm going to bring peace into room and leave peace, you know, which doesn't mean you can't be prophetic and challenge people, but you know, the, 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 the image of, of chaos is, is, you know, for instance, that's what an alcoholic father, for instance, does to his family, you know, uh, instead of being a principle of order, they're always in pins and needles. Will he come home? What mood is he going to be in? Or is he going to this and so on? And it destabilizes the psyche, you know? And I always tell people, if your parents were flat out boring, that was a great grace. <laughs> because they brought stability into a room, you know? You know, you yeah. never had to guess. You, fe you, you feel safe, you know? My yeah. parents died when I was 21. They left behind the gift of peace. You know, yeah. Jesus died. He left behind the gift of peace, you know? Yeah. So, so you don't have to start thinking about death and how to make my will and how to do this and so on. Later on, you know, when you get 70 and 75, you might want to do that, you know, yeah. uh, or make out what the Jews call a living will. And, but, but for right now, it's just say, I want to bring order, peace, stability, and sanity into a room. And that's, that's what I want to leave behind, you know? Right. That's almost like full circle, right? It's yeah, yeah. which I think is why this question needs to be talked about more, yeah. because it's really it, it's not the question of what do I do when I die, yeah. or it's not the question of what happens to me after I die. I mean, that's yeah. God, right? But yeah. 
it's the question of in light of death, how do I live now? And all the way back to where we started, well, live my life wanting it all and never committing to one. That is a life of chaos. Yeah. Whereas a life lived in my cell, life lived in my commitments, a life lived yeah. Yeah. for others is what I hear you saying pretty clearly. Can I add is, one more word to that, which is the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. You know, it's a, that's another aspect, you know, monks make a vow of fidelity, you know, uh, and it basically you make it in your marriage until death do us part, you know, not until one of us doesn't feel like it or whatever. And and in, in the end, Brendan, just the greatest gift you're going to bring to your family, your community, to the world is just the gift of fidelity. I'm going to stay. And again, there's going to be rough seasons, but I'm not going to bail out. You say, I'm going to, I'm going to give my family and the church and the world the gift of my fidelity. You know, and so in scripture, that's everywhere. And with Jesus, that's everywhere in the monastic tradition. You got to stay. It seems like that's what's being. I've just been feeling a lot recently. It seems like that is what's under attack in the world so, so much. It's, we, you know, this is not a, I don't go politics here or anything like that, but I just, the, the constant attack on anything that would be constant, anything that I could stay committed to, anything that I could be faithful to. I'm, I think I'm told everywhere I look these days that staying constant within my soul to one thing is not going to make me happy. Yeah. And not only that, they're going to tell you psychologically impossible to do. You got married 20 years yeah. ago. You're a different person now. Your wife's a different person. How, you know, see, so that you know, they'll see like, like, how can you make permanent commitments? You change, the world changes, that all changes and so on. See, so that they they also attack the psychological basis. See, the commitment is, you know, that's why everybody's into temporary commitments. And no, I, I'm with you. And, and that's one of the deep, I don't know if you want to say sins or whatever, or dysfunctions in our on our planet is that we are not, whatever our other strengths are, we're not a culture of fidelity. We're a culture of infidelity. I'll stay until something better comes along. Yeah. And it's extremely insightful to notice that the possibility of fidelity is even questioned, yeah, yeah. which, you know, I that's kind of hitting me right now. All theological differences between Protestants and Catholic society and all that other stuff. There's that question, can I even stay committed? But I can, obviously. You know, not perfectly, perhaps, but that's kind of beside the point because I think that brings in what you were saying earlier, even about teenagers. Like, that's true of me too. Even when I get off the path of fidelity, God is still going to GPS me back on because that's his goal for me. It just occurred to me that one of the greatest dangers I have faced in the life of fidelity of commitment to anything is that sense that it has to be all or nothing. I can never make a mistake. So it's like, so I think I hear even my younger self's doing that. It's like, well, if I made one mistake, then it's all over, which is sort of the easy way out, (laughs) you know? And I don't think that's really what's going on here. I think the, I think even the life of the monastics, did those guys go into their cell and stay there perfectly all the time, or did they learn their lessons? I don't know. Am I am I off track no, here? Am I going no, way off no, the route? No, you're 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 speaking as as a human being. Remember, I said we're not God. God is perfect. You know, right? We aren't. So that means on on a on a long journey, uh, there's going to mm. be some tough periods. So so I make a distinction between you know what we call perfect fidelity and radical fidelity. You know. Nobody can be perfectly faithful in this life. Nobody, you know, you know, unless unless you have a very short life and a very short marriage, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but you can be radically faithful, which means essentially you're always in it. Sometimes your heart isn't in it, or you know, you make a misstep or something, but but you're there. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, "Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." In Luke's gospel, he said, be compassionate. That's your heavenly father's compassionate. Because in fact, in Hebrew, that's what, you know, well, he was a Greek, but in, that's what it meant. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Nobody can be perfect. Only God can be perfect. You can be compassionate. But distinguish, Brendan, between perfect fidelity, which only God is capable of, and Jesus was, and radical fidelity, which means it, in, in your gut, 
and in your person, you're always there, you know? It's the, yeah, totally. It's the, yeah. I, I, I was just thinking that as you were saying that it's like, it's like, there's a compassionate, there's a kind of compassionate fidelity that yeah. returns to the cell <laughs> returns yeah. always yeah. and will yeah. always return. Yeah. 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 Father Rollheiser, thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation. I appreciate you being willing to just jump in on this and talk about this. It's well, such no, a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. This is, you know, it's interesting. Let me say this last thing. You know, like notice when we talk spirituality, denominationalism doesn't even enter the picture. You know, for instance, we have a PhD program here in spirituality. We have students from every denomination. And in 11 years, we've never had a single conversion and yet everybody leaves more appreciative of their own tradition of every other tradition. Spirituality is the great bridge. You know, you know, dogma and church stuff can sometimes put some, but but notice in spirituality, there's no denominationalism. We're all trying to follow Jesus in, in, our, own, in yeah. our own way. Okay, well, thank, thank you. And, and blessings on your work. Blessings on your work. Thank you very much. Listeners, thank you for being with us. If you have any questions, please shoot me an email at podcast at signpostin.org. And may the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Signpost In, a nonprofit Christian ministry dedicated to helping people connect with God and find direction. We offer spiritual direction, retreats, and lots of other resources like this podcast. Please visit us at signpostin.org to learn more. We especially want to thank our generous donors who support our work and keep this podcast going. If you've benefited from something you've heard on this show, please consider supporting us by making a tax-deductible gift at signpostin.org donate. That's signpostin.org donate. And thank you.